0: I'm Talmage Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's rich history and thought leadership through interviews, commentary, and conversation with best-selling authors. Today, I interviewed Fox & Friends co-host and best-selling historian Brian Kilmeade, author of the new bestseller, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on January 23rd. Enjoy. to make sure that for our wonderful guest brian kilmeade we fill the room it looks like we have succeeded so brian why don't you come on up here while i give you uh an introduction i i think you're here because you know who brian kilmeade is but in case you don't he's the co-host of fox and friends and we're doing this as a luncheon instead of a breakfast because brian has a national radio show that requires him to take care of business but anyway we worked it out with lunch he's also uh, a a best selling author. Uh, virtually every book that he sold is a is top 10 bestseller, including his newest one, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, which we're here to talk about today. So, Brian, welcome to Dallas and the SMU Cox
1: School of Business. hear me or now yeah, you can. Okay, great. I appreciate you coming here at a lunch on a, on a rainy day. I brought the weather with me from New York. I apologize for that. Uh, But when this book came out and we started planning some type of tour uh, from Carl Rove on down, they said, I got to introduce you to Talmadge, Boston. Whatever you do, you got to find a way to stop in the tour. We had a chance to talk over the summer, uh, worked out something in the fall. And sure enough, in uh, 2020, we we have a great date. And for Talmadge to put this together, there's only one person that could do it. It's him and his wife, Claire, had a chance to meet you both uh, again last night. You guys came to New York um, to check out our homeless problem, and it's going well. <laughs> um, uh, but you had a chance to come to New York, meet you face to face And uh, it's just so great during this tour to be able to go to Texas You went to Wichita Falls, San Antonio, obviously uh, Waco, Houston, uh, and now Dallas And it's been uh, one great stop after another
0: Alright, well let's talk about your new book Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers I know we've got a lot of serious Texas history lovers in this audience Now Brian, in your prior best-selling biography, uh, biographies They Involved stories about presidents, Uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson. But for this, you've shifted gears and decided to go into Texas history.
1: What caused you to want to branch out? Um... It's risky because I have so much respect for the people of Texas and the pride that they have. You know, the one thing about our job is I get to travel a lot. And whether it's the uh, going to cover the Super Bowl in Houston or the many events that happen in Dallas, uh, we travel. And the one thing that comes clear, and especially when Texans travel, they have great pride in their state. We learned one day in social studies, and in fact, I'm in touch with my eighth grade social studies teacher to make sure I remember it right. And he goes, is it true? Yeah, but he was born. They give us one day. We did the Alamo, didn't go well. Got over it, is that going to be on the test? 50-50 chance, we moved on. But always the Alamo, I felt like it was your story. But the more I researched it, I said, this is an American story. And I also thought there would be some pushback saying the whole thing while America stole Texas from Mexico. I wanted to study that. Not true. Obviously, Guys like Thomas Jefferson Andrew Jackson pushed back on it. Pretty good authorities. Crane came with the Louisiana Purchase. And the other thing is Fox Nation, which is a brand new app, which I encourage almost everybody here to get who's passionate about history, they gave me a series called What Made America Great. My second stop was the Alamo. And when I got there, almost everyone told me, you know, there's more to the story than the Alamo. It's what happened before, what happened after. And of all people, Ken Burns comes to visit me in studio the next day uh, selling one of his projects. And he told me, you know, San Jacinto, everybody does the Alamo. But talk about how it ended. And when I hear about Sam Houston, the guy should have been president. He would have been president, except for some unfortunate circumstances. But man, is he an important American character. So that's what really brought me around to this. And if you talk to people like Martin Van Buren, James K. Polk, James Buchanan, and this guy named Andrew Jackson, he had presidential material his whole life. And that's his trajectory. But it was anything but a straight line. I'm always intrigued by the way an author opens his book
0: with an epigraph. So, Brian, I'm going to hand you your book. I'm going to ask you to read the epigraph from Sam Houston's mother. And then I want you to explain why you chose
1: it to open your book. Okay. My son tasted to take this musket and never disgrace it. And remember, I rather have all my sons should fill one honorable grave then one of them should turn his back to save his life. Go and remember, too, that while, while um, the door of my cottage is open to brave men, it is eternally shut against cowards. And to me, if you want to know a guy that would run into the blaze of rifle fire uh, and arrows uh, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, it's a guy that was raised by a woman with that mindset and who loses her husband early, who is forced to uh, pick up stakes and literally travel hundreds of miles in a carriage with those boys and then resettle clear land. That's the uh, that's the type of woman that would raise a Sam Houston. So I thought and also I love the fact that it's a woman who said it, who, uh, and, and also set to the groundwork. So it's, my main thing is I don't want to write for men. If every time I can go back and reach in and round out a story by telling the whole story, because it is, uh, uh America is a story of men and women. I'd love to do it. That's why I thought it would be perfect.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the next thing in your book is the prologue where you talk about Sam Houston's amazing courage and toughness at age 21 at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend fighting the Indians where he was almost killed in what he called the darkest night of his life. So what happened to Houston at this battle 22 years before the Alamo and San Jacinto that was so important to his later life?
1: Well, I I have two things and two themes and I don't think it was a reach to do it. I, I thought, number one... America is fragile, especially then, I think now. you got to always don't ever take the democracy in the country for granted. And number two, courage is great, but courage has got to be calculated. And I said, this would be the perfect place to start because I want to tell the story in the beginning to where we're going. So if you are a fearless young man with tremendous leadership ability and you demonstrated to this other future great American named Andrew Jackson, when you're in battle, you want to lead. So you leap over a wall, and you go, and you get shot, or you get, in his case, get hit with an arrow. And he can't get the arrow out. So he goes to his friend, he goes, pull the arrow out. The guy's like, I can't do it, it's stuck, and it's basically going, you're freaking me out. So he pulled out his gun, he put it to his head, he said, pull it out. Well, they pull it out. It bleeds like crazy. He's forced off the battlefield. The second time, Andrew Jackson walks over and goes, listen, I got to finish off these uh, these Indians before uh, night falls because the night vision glasses were stuck at the UPS store. A lot of I didn't include that in the book. I didn't have time. Um, So he said, can anybody here fight? He goes into basically the sick bay, the doctor area, the medical tent. And he goes. I'm going to do it again. Sure enough, his buddy jumps over, gets blown away, and he gets shot in the shoulder and gets shot again. When the doctors get a look at him and they pull him off the battlefield, they said, I'm not going to take this guy. He's, uh, why put him through the torture of surgery? He's not going to last the night, but he does. As Talmadge said uh, in the book, he has one of the worst nights of his life, but he survives. He recovers in his mom's house, works his way back to Washington, and looks around he's recovering from his wounds he's got himself a commission he's got himself a lot of respect and he also is looking at washington with the white house and the capitol building burned to the ground every building burned to the ground he says okay it's great to be it's great to be have courage but i got to be smart about it and man how close did we come to total annihilation and that's the laying the groundwork for the story
0: Now, every good biography of Sam Houston has to give uh, some coverage to his very important relationship with Andrew Jackson. So exactly how did Jackson influence Houston over the course of their 30-year relationship that lasted until Jackson's death in 1845?
1: If you saw me at the Dallas Women's Club last night, I, I say this story, and I, I just love it because um, those Rocky movies are, the, for me, the coolest movies, except for the one, uh, the Rocky V, when they fought outside the bar. Didn't like that one. But what is consistent? they always flash back to the previous story to remind you what happened. And if I could link Andrew Jackson, I just did Andrew Jackson, the miracle of new Orleans. And I talked about what led to that battle. And one of those battles was battle of horseshoe bend. But what if I flashed you back to the battle of horseshoe bend and I bring in another character who was there and that's Sam Houston. So I was able to go back to that. And when, when Jackson saw Houston and he saw so much of himself and the guy, although he was a little bit taller, um, Jackson, as uh, you may recall, uh, lost his brother in the re- battle in the Revolutionary War. Him and his other brother were scouts, and they were captured. They both took blows to the head. His other brother never recovered as a prisoner of war. By the time his mom got him out, he was he died at the house. So is Andrew and his mom. And Andrew's mom says we had to make some money, so she goes to help out a cousin. And next thing you know, a trunk ends up on his porch, and it's his mom's stuff. She's dead. Here he is all alone without any social safety net and he's an orphan in any other country at the time You're done. You're a vagrant. You end up being a criminal There's no place in society for you But in america he was raised by his town his county and his country And he lived for two things to pay back his country for raising him and britain for wiping out his family He was the perfect guy to lead and he need great people underneath him. And there is sam houston and he is a soldier's general a militia general and he sees a lot of Houston in him. His father died young. He did not have a great childhood. He leaves and lives with the Cherokee Indians for a while. He was a bad clerk, an unwilling farmer, and decides when it comes to going to school, I'd rather read books on my own. Not the perfect youth to be a, f- a future great American, but he overcame it. There was something about him and his older brothers that didn't mix. He would mix with his cousins, but never with his brothers again, really. And then he'd volunteer to fight and found his own feet under in the military, and Jackson saw a lot of him, so he kind of put his arm around him. And then he'd be he going to time to run for to get a commission. Jackson made sure he got it. When it was time to run for Congress, Jackson made sure he had the candidacy and the support. When it was time to run for governor, he made it happen. But Jackson, and these are my words, said Houston maybe never missed an opportunity to shoot himself in the foot. So many times through his upbringing, he'd have opportunities, and he would trip himself up by some of his actions. Whether it was this horrible thing by getting a divorce back then that was considered a scandal because it was so quick and the accusations are still up for debate. But Jackson just said, I like to mentor someone. He had no kids of his own, him and his wife had the perfect relationship, but they didn't have kids. So Houston was one of those kids that showed up on the porch as a young man and would learn from him, was interested in him. And most importantly, he showed him the respect.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe to me at least, the two most intriguing parts of Sam Houston's life involve what you mentioned a minute ago, and that is when he was a teenager, he ran away from home to live with the Cherokee Indians and did that for a few years. Then he came back, reentered civilization, ultimately became a U.S. senator from Tennessee and the governor of Tennessee, and he married a a woman from a very influential Tennessee family, but the marriage lasted less than, uh, what, three months, and it was a total humiliation So what did he do? He went back and lived with the Cherokees again. So what was it about the Cherokee lifestyle that was so appealing to Sam Houston that he would want to enter it not once but twice?
1: And that's for something I want to research more. But what I basically got from this is this. They got discipline, they got values, and they got ethics, and they gave him respect that he wasn't getting from his brothers. And perhaps his mom was distracted trying to make a living to provide that hands-on opportunity. He's heard from that quote how tough she was. But with the Cherokee Indians, he got that sense of family and values. And he became one of the first American Indian advocates and one of the big fire- He had not to flash too forward and be like a Donald Trump interview where you ask one question and he goes over here. But when he got in that big fight in Congress that ended up putting him back in the limelight, even though he lost the case and was censured, is because they accused him of taking money from the American Indians instead of putting it towards their causes in Congress, which struck him at his core. He's like, are you kidding me? I've been fighting for the Cherokees and the American Indians to be treated fairly. And even though Andrew Jackson had a reputation for just the opposite, it shows you you be friends and you could be mentored, but you don't have to agree with everything. So I think also the Cherokees had two nicknames for him, the Raven, because he was bigger than anybody on that campus. Uh, number two, the big drunk. He had bowed to what we now would identify as alcoholism. There's no question about it. I mean, back then, I'm amazed by how many stories start and end with liquor. So um, and he was drinking a lot. And it took his last marriage that worked for and, a, and religion, a conversion to Catholicism, for him to say, okay, I'm giving up the liquor, I'm done. And a lot of times, his reputation was what he did when he was drunk, because he would drink uh, to—he dropped, literally. And people would go, well, this guy that started the day so respectful ended ended the day so disgracefully. And he started drinking a lot of the Cherokee Indians, but they still accepted him, and they still opened their arms to him. So having not been an expert on the Indian culture, my sense is that he really got a sense of family there. And every time he was in crisis, he went back. That was almost like his church.
0: In fact, I forgot to mention, his second wife was a Cherokee right. woman.
1: Yeah. Which is kind of interesting, because he kind of acknowledged it, and he had this interesting way of ending it, going, yeah, I'm leaving, we're just about done. And she's like, you got it, you can keep the tent, I'm going to take the horse, I'm out of here. You know, you don't really see that on TMZ anymore. Um, but he kind of ended that kind of mutual disgrace. You know, you realize we're growing apart, so let's leave. And they did. Yeah. Which
0: leads us to... Uh, the circumstances by which he decided to come to Texas. Now, you say uh, he was a, quote, public paradox. He was a ruined man in many respects. So he sought a second chance in life in Texas. So were there many people who came to Texas in the early 1830s like Sam Houston who
1: were essentially seeking a do-over in life? And one of the questions last time you may remember, Talmadge, was what surprised you most? And a lot of times... You hear rhetoric about certain things, and then you look at it, it's not really true. But, you know, every I could not believe how many people were looking at their second shot to remake themselves, which I found astounding because we always thought people came to America to remake themselves. In my situation personally, my grandfather was the youngest one in his family when he was 18. He was like, you're not getting the farm, you might as well leave. So in Italy, they have different stories. Well, once you left here, people were like, well, you know what? It's kind of too structured. Don't like the tax structure. I can't really get the opportunities I want in America. So I want to get a new shot after a new shot. And the new shot was Texas. And it was a place in which, as I uh, reboot, that Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and many others, maybe except John Quincy Adams, were convinced was ours anyway. And when they couldn't populate it, meaning the Spanish and then Mexico— It seemed like an opportunity for Moses Austin to go down there, turn it over to Stephen F. Austin when he fell ill, and then start populating it. And all you uh, Texans kept your word. You did exactly what you were told. Free taxes for 10 years, converted to Catholicism. The slave thing was supposed to leave slavery behind. They didn't. But it wasn't, say, flourishing like it was in the South, in other areas of the South. But... What happened is you cleared the land, you made the land productive, you became a productive uh, portion of Mexico, originally Spain, when the deal was cut, but when you ripped up the Constitution, things changed. But when you hear about William Travis have a problem, accuse his wife of fooling around with a guy and taking him out, he's like, I guess I should leave, comes out to Texas. Davy Crockett, he said, listen, if I lose this election, and Andrew Jackson made sure he did, I'm going to Texas. You know, you see uh, Jim Bowie. He loses his entire family to disease. He's going to Texas. Now, these are the main guys, but they all, and the main families, but they all came down. And if you ask me why the reputation fits the Texans are tougher, because if you thought it was a tough settling land in in America, can you imagine going to a place where, it's not really yours. There's aggressive uh, Indian tribes there, the Comanches and the Apaches, number one. And number two, you're coming down to an area, not only is there not a Walmart, Kmart, or a Target, uh, you basically go, you show up with an axe, a rifle, and a wagon. Best of luck. And for the most part, Texans don't make excuses. And I look at the, this room, I get the same sense. As I mentioned, this is my sixth or seventh stop in Texas. You don't make excuses, you make do. And that's what they did. And they helped each other out while looking out for each other. They also looked out for their own families. And there was a real sense of community, which also enabled them to put together a very uh, strong, cohesive army as best as possible, in my estimation.
0: I see my great friend Dale Petrosky in front of me. He is the present CEO of the Dallas Greater Regional Chamber. His job is to bring companies to Texas. so he's taking You're doing jobs. too
1: good a job. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking notes on your quote. Texans don't make excuses, they make do. Yeah, I love that quote. Yeah, I'll probably never say it again. Uh, I actually, it just, it just uh, occurred to me now. Uh, but the one thing about doing a morning show, my short-term memory shot, I might even black out this whole event. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Uh, but I, I do know that's one of the big things we talk about on the radio, on especially as is Texas is changing, and is it because Rick Perry did too good of a job and uh, bringing companies in? And uh, that's up for debate, obviously.
0: All right. So Sam Houston arrives in Texas. One of the first people he meets is Stephen F. Austin. And at that time, in 1832, what exactly was Stephen F. Austin trying to accomplish regarding the advancement of Texas? Everything.
1: Everything. Uh, he was trying to create an organization. He was trying to give out land in an orderly fashion. He was trying to get people that would qualify and fit in. He was just trying. He was to also, discuss, I think, creating a society, a code of conduct. Now, people adequately say and accurately say, not a great general, not a great military leader. He wasn't supposed to be. I mean, he's from the north. His dad got him into this business. He did, his, his dying wish, came down here. But what he was is a great conciliator. He was somebody who would bring families together and he would solve problems. I think you need qualified to do it by almost all accounts you know when when it came to elections and the first president of Texas he didn't win but everyone knew how valuable he was to Texas and Houston made sure that he was respected and I think the one thing that came to mind is he was so respected he was somebody who was a great listener and a problem solver and he was organized and was astounding too and I think I included in uh, the book is a British ambassador came down to kind of see the area because in the back of his mind he kind of wanted to get Texas and he said to the Mexican government have you checked out texas uh they're kind of doing their own thing they're flourishing they're organized they are productive and mexico wasn't and they were a mess but texans said yeah i hear you're a mess i'll buy by your rules leave us alone And when they started handing over mayors and governors and saying we're going to have – there's going to be no due process and we're going to tell you who your leaders are, that doesn't sit well with you guys in this room. And it didn't sit well with five generations ago. So Stephen F. Austin, I think, is absolutely invaluable. I think he's well-respected. What I thought was ridiculous and almost criminal was 18 months ago when they talked about taking his statue down. I mean, my goodness, what is going on? So thankfully you offended that off, and I think I brought it because that's when I, I was in my final throes of the book when Andrew Jackson, I'm researching that, they're trying to take his statue down out of New Orleans. Do they know it wouldn't have been an American city without him?
0: All right. Well, let's go on to another major character, Santa Ana, the Mexican political leader and general, a man who, as your book points out, essentially led nine lives. So here's a hypothetical question for you, Brian. Let's assume that you're a highly educated citizen of Mexico today in 2020, very knowledgeable about your nation's history. Do you regard Santa Ana as an effective or an ineffective leader during the time he was at the helm?
1: Well, I mean, a couple of things. You, if you are brutal and without conscience and are power-hungry, And are a narcissist and only care about yourself. You can achieve power, possibly. I mean, I look at Hugo Chavez. Is he a great leader? Yeah, if he only cared about himself If he didn't mind circumventing society If he didn't mind taking money From all productive uh, landowners Santa Ana was about Santa Ana From the best I can ascertain Santa Ana was about his glory Not his people Why else would he travel into another region With almost no medical care Why else would he have Thousands of soldiers march across Untenable land uh, through great distances Just because he knew if he had great numbers He could throw them out the Texans, Texians back then, and achieve victory. Who else would step over his men's dead bodies or dying bodies as he got to the Alamo and would declare it a victory, even though he lost maybe a thousand of his men to about 180 other uh, Texian fighters? I mean, that's the mindset. And almost every military person, including General McChrystal, who joined me for the TV special, said... Uh, he was an absolute clown when it came to military tactics. And the way he showed up in San Jacinto, the way he timed his march and decided to rest and supervise it, where he was worried about himself instead of his people. I mean, the way he backed himself up to a body of water when he couldn't swim and allowed the bridge to be destroyed uh, is unthinkable. But how would he use his charm? Somehow he used his charm to stay alive, and he used his charm to get back home. And people that were with him during that time when he was held captive after the battle when they caught him, the people that were with him said he was absolutely charming and he was charismatic. But, again, what are you willing to do in order to achieve power? So, to me, if you're a Mexican figure, I'd study him. If you're a Mexican citizen, I would study him. But understand it's all about him. He did not have his best interest of his people in mind, from what I can tell and it was all about him attaining power. And if his country got better, it was just because he got more power. But I am, resi- I am in awe of the resilience. I mean, he lost a leg and had a funeral for his leg. <laughs> Who sent to Cuba, sent back, fought the Mexican War, ex- exiled again. I mean, I can't believe how many times he came back. An important figure, but not a laudable figure.
0: There you go. Another major character, obviously, was the leader at the Alamo, William Barrett Travis, who at the time was only 26 years old. And he had two dramatic high points during his 13 days of glory. The first, of course, was the letter to the public seeking reinforcements that ends with victory or death. And the second was where he drew the line in the dirt to see who wanted to stay and fight and who wanted to leave. And uh, Stephen Harrigan, well-known Texas, said the, uh, the letter, the victory or death, is the sacred text of Texas history. And drawing the line in the dirt, he calls the linchpin of the Alamo legend. So as I'm reading all this, which you tell so vividly, I think, my gosh, so should some Lynn manuel Miranda wannabe create a Travis musical on the order of Hamilton? I can't imagine a more dramatic
1: life. Absolutely. Especially, I would love to see that. Um, <laughs> I do find it heartening just to take on that concept that Hamilton is so successful on Broadway, and I do think it's brilliant. And I know there's a, a bit of a point of view, and I didn't enjoy the ber- uh, berating our vice president. But I do love the fact that a lot of people walk out of there and they, lo- they know 90% more than they did about American history. But uh, William Travis, at 26, a lawyer, with not necessarily military experience, has an actual leadership and a lot of courage. And boy, was he a good writer. I mean, you read this stuff and you get chills because can, can you imagine having the courage to know you're going to die? and still care about your legacy and the future of your country, although technically not even in your country yet. And that, to me, is the personification of leadership. Look... If he had lived to 80, he would have been dead for, two, you know, 150 years by now. And I'm sure he had much more great living at 26. But he lives in infamy by how he lived and how he died and what he did when he's staring at death. And to me, that's when I say, you know, some people say myth. I don't know. It's not a myth. Read it and see what happened. He led. And, you know, famously is one of the, when they finally breached the wall, he was get shot in the head and he goes down. And even the, the word is with that line and in the line that people dispute, but I don't, Susanna Dickinson said it happened. Uh, they took Crockett in a stretcher and he crossed the line, even though he was suffering uh, from an illness would ultimately uh, allowed him to be susceptible enough to be uh, what it looks to be bayoneted to death. My sense in reading about Jim Bowie, yeah. I think he would have taken the thousand Mexicans by himself. He was like, like a superman yeah Yeah. you you said crockett the first time you meant oh boy yeah
0: that brings me to the next question davy crockett and one of the most interesting uh few pages in the book was the circumstances by which davy crockett died that's not a well-known story how did how did he reach his end
1: Well, I mean, again, Susanna Dickinson said that he was uh, one of the last one holed up in the church and he was caught and brought forward. And uh, he was brought forward and you had him confronted by Santa Ana. And as he's sitting there and they said, this is cricket. uh, And this was done by Pena, who wrote his book when he realized the Alamo was not going away and it was a story bigger than life. So he wrote it while in, not a big fan of Santa Ana, by the way, he points out all the Santa Ana efforts. He was basically his chief of staff and an officer. He wrote that this guy named Cricket Who's famous in America is brought out, and they were kind of arguing they should be left alive. And he said, "What? Do, what don't you stand about total uh, annihilation? What don't you understand about that?" And with that, two people looking to please, uh, two looking people to please, to "Anna killed him on the spot." So murdered in cold blood. In cold blood. After after the battle. And, and can you say this? When you're the most famous man in America, and there was fame back then, someone wrote a biography on him by the way he trapped and the bears that he caught and his fearlessness and his, uh, and his, and his uh, raw intellect, if, if not a learned intellect, uh, in his, his charismatic way, this down-homes way. He was bigger than life. Then he wrote his own book. He said, why do people make money off my life? I'll write my own book. Not nearly as good. So when he shows up, they can't believe it. They think nothing can happen to us. And they said, listen, you're an officer. He's like, I'm not an officer. I just arrived in Texas. I'm a private. I mean, that's to be famous, to be important, to lose an election and come in and see a bunch of men around you and say, I'm going to earn my way up with you. I'm not an officer. I'm not taking any legacy with me. Sam Houston had a similar story. They said, you're a famous, you know, everybody knows our dad. You shouldn't go in as a private. He goes, I haven't done anything. That's how I'm going in. And he let his own, uh, his own prowess uh, raise him through the ranks. And I thought that was pretty amazing, too. Also, word is he could play the fiddle. He entertained everybody, even though they knew on the outside they were running out of ammo, they were running out of food, and no uh, reinforcements were coming. That's pretty cool. I thought Joe Montana looking at John Candy in the Super Bowl uh, on his final drive against Cincinnati Bengals, when he looked there and go, look, John Candy. And they thought, Joe, focus on the game. I mean, that's Davy Crockett. Hey, Davy, you're playing the fiddle. We're about to die. <laughs> All right, so uh, we have
0: the tragic ending at the Alamo. How does that impact uh, Texas and, of course, Sam Houston's leadership going forward? What what kind of effect did that have on the morale and, and and the game plan going forward?
1: Well, what they thought, they thought they basically won the war. What happened? The Mexicans thought. The Mexicans saw this is it, and San Ana was convinced this is his greatest victory, and said, I got this, I got the fort back. For the record, Sam Houston never wanted him to hold the Alamo. He says, we can't be caught in structures. we got to keep moving. We've got to stay fluid. He never wanted him to stay in goal yet. They didn't listen to him then. He sent Jim Bowie in to get him out. They didn't listen. Bowie looked around and says, no one can stop us. They've had a series of small victories. But when they wipe out the 180, some of the most famous people in Texas and America, it inspired them. It alarmed them. But they realized they have to stay. This is, this is game on. And they're taking this serious when they saw the numbers of Mexicans that showed up and that Santa Santa Ana was there. But what it also did is alert a lot of people in Louisiana and throughout the states. You better come to fight. We're going to need your help. And more people would eventually pour in. And Sam Houston, just to round it out, we might get into this later. And what I tried to sell in the book for non-Texans. I wanted to convince people this is an American story. And I wanted to simplify it in a way while still keeping the story sacred. Was the guy that had courage but wasn't calculated also had to tell a bunch of angry Texans who knew somebody in the Alamo and Goliad to do something that is so unnatural. Run. And burn everything in the process. And he did. And he had to go. So picture a guy as big as anybody in the country, as strong as anyone in the country, as great a shot as anyone in the country, the one with only military experience, maybe the most military experience in the country, would have to run away. Because in life, whether it's at the sports bar down the street, sometimes even though you want to take the guy out, you go, I have a family, I have kids, I have a job, I got to not punch this guy in the head. I got to go back and get in the car because I got to think of the greater good. He had to go, as much as we want to stand and fight, I know my guys aren't ready. They're not ready. They don't even understand what they're getting into. Some they have never even shot a man before. So burn the villages and go back. Something the Russians would do in this, what I thought, an analogy, with the scorched earth against Napoleon and then against Hitler. He did the same thing. So, again, Santana doesn't care about his people. They don't have supplies. We'll live out of the villages. Not if they burn everything. Not if they take everything. So Sam Houston is smart.
0: So when Sam Houston decides that the best strategy is to retreat, so to fight another day, how did the the men respond? Just got
1: to open up my top. There we go. Ah, they were angry. Uh, they didn't want to listen to him. The one thing that's pretty consistent, even whether it's Stephen F. Austin or it's Sam Houston. Uh, Texans had a very headstrong. They thought they knew it all. It was literally like hurting cats, the utter definition of it. And they didn't understand why any Texan and any man like Sam Houston known for his courage would run away. They questioned his cow- They questioned his courage. They called him a coward. And what Sam Houston did, and I still can't understand, he didn't take his time to explain what he was doing. He's like, I'm Sam Houston, I know what's best, get in line. He did take a few of the guys who were really giving him the hardest time and say, okay, go ahead, run a scouting mission, tell me what's happening over there. He let him get into a few skirmishes and kind of burn off some adrenaline, and then they came back to him. So the whole time, it's really a story of him trying to get people to listen to him. Remember, he told Jim Fannin at Goliad, a West Point dropout, don't stay. And he hesitated twice. And when he finally leaves, he got caught in the middle of a field, uh, foolishly trusted the officer when he said, I'll bring you back and treat you with military courtesy and let you go back to your homes as long as you promise not to fight. And they all ended up shot. So two times they didn't listen to him. He lost two thirds of his army and 800 guys. Of 600 guys, and then at least under just under 200 guys, and now he had to go backwards. So a lot of people were mad at him. They thought that he should have found a way to help out at uh, at the Alamo. So, uh, and then people were coming back talking about the brutality, and when they, those, uh, those stories of brutality leaked into camp, more guys came in from America, and instead of Texans taking a backward step, they wanted to take a forward step and fight.
0: Well, you draw a real... Uh, dramatic parallel between the way Houston responded to that situation and how George Washington went about fighting the American Revolution why don't you explain that parallel
1: well, a couple of things. You know, after the Battle of Bunker Hill and the Revolutionary War and the, 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 the great courageous way in which the Americans fought in Boston, and even though technically the Brits won, they said, what have we gotten ourselves into? There was a sense in the Battle of Boston when they decided to give up Boston and just sail away and go to New York. There was a sense among the colonists that they could take on, so they could take on Britain head to head. No. They came from Canada in great numbers, more ships than you could imagine. They said you couldn't even see the water. So many ships were sailing into Staten Island. By the time it was time to fight, uh, even though they melted down statues to make bullets, Washington squared off with these guys and was getting blown out of the water, almost destroyed. He was backed up with his back uh, to the end of Brooklyn, trying to get to Manhattan. Little problem with the East River. He would have to have uh, civilian ships come, boats come in the middle of the night and have his troops evacuate. And out of nowhere, the seas calmed, the word went out, and his guys were able to get out through Manhattan and do something that George Washington never wanted to do. Run away. Why? Because they knew if they squared off, they were done. They'd have to fight on their terms at the right time. They'd have to go through a massive retreat. To the point where the Continental Congress, who wasn't protected in Philadelphia, said, I'm going to, there's a big push to take his commission away. We put Washington in there to fight, and this guy won't fight. Washington goes, listen, I know what it's like to fight. I'm going to know what it's like to lose if I fight. So he had to conduct a war in the shadows. He had to set up a spy ring in the middle, which I was lucky enough to, to learn about and write about. And they had to give Washington information and intelligence to allow him to take out a a superior opponent Because guess what We had time, we had nowhere to go And the Brits were saying how long is it going to take to defeat this enemy What the Texans had We're going have nowhere to go We're going to keep retreating until we're ready to fight By the time they were ready to fight Cornwallis was forced to surrender By the time Houston was ready to fight He didn't know if he was going to win But at least he knew he had a shot
0: Okay, which brings us To the Battle of San Jacinto Which lasted a grand total of 18 minutes So what happened to Sam Houston during those 18
1: minutes? Well, another thing he does, which shows great courage, he leads. You know, so he's in the front in a horse. He gets shot off that horse twice, and then the last time he takes a bullet in the ankle. But as he leads, there's a couple of things that happen. He sleeps till 10. He has a War Council meeting at 12. And about 2, he takes a vote and says, we fight tonight. Why is that unusual? Because they don't fight at night. They fight today. And it was Santa Ana the Mexican army's thought, if you don't fight early, you're not going to fight at all. And since a lot of Santa Ana's army, they got reinforced. While Houston, in an unpopular move, waited, they were exhausted. So they said, let's put our guns in a pile and get some rest. Rumor is Santa Ana was having his way with some woman, and the rest are sleeping. So Sam Houston says, we fight with the grass high and a slight incline. They almost got into camp before the Mexican Army knew it hit them. They get inside camp, and there were some angry Texians and some angry Houston fighters, Texas Army fighters, that won for absolute victory. And what is Santa? And in 18 minutes, the victory was clear, but it took about two hours to finish him off. But what also is clear is while Sam Houston stays and leads the fight, when things started going south, Santa Ana had changed into a peasant, uh, a peasant garb. And runs and hides It's all about him And when he gets discovered the next day Santa uh, Houston bleeding from the ankle Needing medical attention Knowing that people want to hang and tear him apart He is cool and calculated And shows great courage in saying We're going to treat him like a prisoner of war Get his trunk, get his stuff, get his letterhead We're going to draw up uh, st- by the way, the war isn't over because they were to reinforcements and the Texan army was going to be reengaged shortly. It was Santa Ana's handwriting and the note delivered by Deaf Smith that delivered them to uh, the upcoming general. Uh, to say, turn around, Santa Ana's been captured. This war is over. And then they later got him to sign to the Texas provisional government uh, overall of Texas. So the old Sam Houston probably would have ripped his head off. Uh, But the new Sam Houston, in his 40s, bleeding again, hurt again, took his time. So that battle was so quick. Stephen Moore wrote about it better than anybody ever could. He joined me at the Battle of San Jacinto. And the best thing about it, Talmadge, is that people were so unselfish with their expertise. And they were able to. So not only with me, I have to see it. So to be able to walk those fields and see that area and see where he stood, I mean, there's that story of the which way tree. We found it where they come up to an oak tree with branches pointing one way, go to the American border, the other way, go fight. And he got pushed or Houston decided to go fight. But to go up to that tree and see what Houston saw, to go to that battle and stare stood where Houston stood and to go with the Mexican area and was saw where the Mexican camp was, just painted. It was great, even though the water bodies have changed a little bit. painted a very vivid picture for anyone which is sad to me and you disabuse me of this is that unlike the Alamo no one's going to San Jacinto and that kind of that bothers me because it's a great facility there really is the movie's fantastic the librarian's fantastic uh she was able to point me to some original documents and pictures uh that I've never seen anywhere else so uh hopefully we get the word out to go there I don't know if your schools go there do they they used to. I don't know if they still do. They got to And you also actually just, uh, you went against Washington. They said, whatever you do, don't build a building bigger than the Washington Monument. Turns out uh, you did. <laughs> surprise,
0: surprise, surprise. So uh, we win the Battle of San Jacinto 1836. We don't become a state until 1845. Why did it take nine years?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, the whole thing about slave state, free state thing. Uh, and America wasn't ready to accept another slave state because they were teetering on the on a Civil War. And any little move, if you read back about this, how close we came to Civil War before the actual Civil War started, and if you go accept Texas in, they thought, one, could we end up in a war with Mexico? Do we want another war? Number two, what could we possibly do uh, for a free state to battle what Texas would have been technically a slave state? So there was a huge delay. So instead of him being governor, he was president. And guess what Britain did? Britain did what Trump does. So— Uh, And Andrew Jackson, to a degree, must have loved it. Britain goes, listen, if America doesn't want you and Mexico still believes they have you and you're worried about your protection, you don't have much of a standing army and you have almost no money, we'll take you. (laughs) And Sam Houston goes, hey, listen, America, I got this great offer from Britain. They seem like great people. Their their uniforms are a little bright, don't like their buttons, but they'll watch our back. And I no longer have to be fearful of invasion. So that forced their hand, yeah. our
0: hand. In the 1860 election, of course, Abraham Lincoln wins, and southern states start seceding. Sam Houston is the great Texas leader. How did he respond to the secession?
1: Well, crisis? you point me to it's going to be Bring me back to the Sam Houston Museum in, uh, in a month. To, it's going to be in the paperback, which comes out this spring. They said, well, you always have to add something in the paperback. You don't have to, but I like to. Rather, people say, how would you like the same book that's just bendable? I've tried to say, here's a— uh, yeah. What a marketer. Right. So I said, let me put something new in it, and what I did is that. And I just said how Lincoln approached— Houston. Now, Houston took the letter and ended up putting it into the fire. But Lincoln approached Houston and said, Houston's like, uh, I'm about the union. Andrew Jackson was all about the union. And he said, whatever you do, you got to keep it together. with this always going to be something, and we're going to lose if we fight. He goes, the Amer- the, uh, I know what they're like when they fight in the North. They're fighting for the right reason, number one. And number two is they have all the material. They're going to wear us out. There's going to be so much death and destruction. Don't do it. And when they, he got outvoted— including his own son, volunteer for the Confederate Army. Uh, They go, okay, I quit. So he left. So when Lincoln heard about this, he said, listen, Sam, I'll give you an army. I'll get you protection. Keep Texas out of it. Why don't you form a provisional government and get people that follow you and believe in you and see what you see that we all know? And he said, if I was a younger man, yes, but now I'll just go. Go. And he would die before the Civil War ended. But he was absolutely prescient in so many of his predictions. Uh, It is amazing. And many biographies. Every once in a while you get a biographer that writes about uh, a subject. And they just love the guy or the woman so much. Everything is perfect. But every biography says it. This guy predicted so much that eventually happened. Uh, And Sam Usney goes, listen, we're going to fight a civil war and it's going to be terrible for everybody. Uh, But it was amazing to see. And Lincoln was smart. He wanted to stay out of it. And he wanted Texas to stay out of it more than anything. And he wasn't successful, but he tried. And that's what I'm going to put in the paperback, that big movement, that tough decision that he made. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, for my last question, you say at the end of the book that the war of Texas independence was really, quote, a story
1: of redemption. How so? Here's why. And this is why I can relate to this story, because he is not perfect. He, as I mentioned, he drank too much. You know, at the problem with his marriage, I don't know if it was his fault. We don't know the difference. You know that, uh, with the, um, uh, a situation where, you know, he was somebody at, I guess as a kid, when they asked him to be a farmer, he wouldn't want to be a farmer. They said, you don't want to be a farmer. Will you help us out in the story? He's like, I'm not really into. So he was a bad farmer, a bad clerk. When they made him go to school, he said, no, I'd rather read on my own and hang out and do it, hang out with my friends. That's not the story you usually hear of great Americans. He had options. His family actually had money. He had a, a strong uh, family and an extended family, and he said, No, this isn't for me. So he made the decision to go with the American Indians, and you have a situation where he does beat another lawmaker with his cane uh, who accused him of things he wasn't happy about. So he does end up back in Congress. He does end up in a situation where he falls on his face in front of people when he's making speeches. He's oversleeping. There's a story of redemption, and it's a story of somebody who's growing. And to, to me, that's more of the American story. We're, no, we're never perfect, but how are we going to look at our uh, our failings and adjust? and learn from them so a governor that leaves in humiliation ends up becoming a governor again of that state a president of that state and a senator from that state and should have been the president of the country so when you're down be down you learn from it you make the adjustment and you come back and somehow create loyalty among people that come in your path that instead of being angry at you pull for you and try to help you so, in the end, he ends up being this laudable figure. And tonight at the Bush Library, I did not memorize it, but basically it said, as is in his last years, he said, You can remember me for a lot of things, but just remember me as an honest man. So, when you look at his resume, be impressed. But if you want to impress him, remember him as honest.
0: Mm-hmm. We have time for some questions from the audience. Yes, Tom. What Tom, would you stand up so everybody can hear?
1: Well, they felt as though if they could get San Antonio, they could repel and be in a good position to stop the Mexican army from coming in. Number one, keep in mind, Sam Houston wasn't for it. Most military experts I spent time with, like General McChrystal, who's like just in love with this story, um, says you should never be holed up in a fort. And plus, that wasn't a fort. It was it was it was a. It's a, more of a church. It was never meant to be a fort. And number two is they decided to take the Alamo against the standing army, General Cosa's army, and they go and probe it and they have it and they actually take it. And once they take it, they go, why would we give this place up? They fell in love with it because they felt so protected there. And in the end, it would be their undoing because yeah, you're protected for now, but ultimately you're also trapped. So it was again, it was a mistake. Yeah, So it was a tactical error on their part, but it was almost a victim of their own success. Not many people thought they were going to be able to penetrate it on the outside and convince them to give up. And by the way, General Coase's army, when they get inside, they treat them respectfully. And they said, we're going to let you go. Just promise me you're not going to take part in this war anymore. And they go, great. They took part in the war, every one of them. And they went back against their word. And they went back against the word of had too. When they said, if you just give up, we're going to kill each other, and it's going to be ugly, we all could die. Rather than kill each other, why don't you give up, and we'll just let you go? They didn't. They lied. So that, that's basically what I ascertained. I think it was a mistake.
0: Another question. Yes.
1: Would you know stand up, please?
0: Uh, do we know if David Crockett was killed by stabbing
1: um, I believe it was shooting. He was shot to death right there. Yeah, That's, that's what, but looks, like. looks like he was stabbed. Any other questions? Okay. Brian is
0: going to be in the back of the room signing more books and we have copies of all of his yeah. other best-selling books there that I know the SMU bookstore would love to sell you copies of and he'd be happy to sign.
1: So, yeah, I would just like to add this, uh, in case you don't know, I'm thrilled you guys came out. Thanks so much for the sponsors, Talmadge, especially, uh, but just so you give me a background, I did, uh, uh, the games do count because I wanted to be a great athlete and I wasn't, and so many people that I deal with in life, uh, or at first were fell short in their first goal. A lot of them to be athletes, so I put the games to count together. Includes George W. Bush and people like Jack Welch. And then I did it's how you play the game, proving that even if you were a pro like Joe Montana or Steve Young or uh, historical figures like George Patton, uh, what you what they do in sports often shapes your character. It's how you play the game. Then George Washington's Secret Six, which is about aspiring you probably never heard of, and George well, George Washington's words: "We wouldn't have won the war without him." Thomas Jefferson took on Islamic extremism. Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, Andrew Jackson, the Battle of New Orleans, and then that brought me to, to this point. So, if anybody wants them personalized, I'll hang out in the back. But there's no pressure. This has already been a home run getting a chance to meet you today, uh, and let alone the box lunch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Brian, as you're walking to the
1: corner, thank you let's very give much. Brian Kilmeade is
0: as high energy a speaker as I've ever encountered. He's certainly doing his part to keep Americans excited about our country's rich history. You can find Brian's book on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmage Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.